Romans 12, verses 1 to 13. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts, according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervour serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. So what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the word worship? What is it? What's the picture that springs to, to your mind? How would you describe worship? What would you say that it was? I think that for most people, the idea of worship is what we do when we gather together here on Sunday morning. Uh, and those Sunday morning gatherings can take a variety of different forms. There would be people who would say, this is what worship is. There would be others who would want to say that this is what worship looks like. And then there are others that say maybe worship looks a little bit more like this. It's become popular in recent years for churches to have a worship pastor. Uh, that's generally someone who leads and coordinates the music in the church because they would say that's the most significant thing that defines their worship, the music style that you have. And again, that can span across a variety of different church cultures. Uh, historically, in Presbyterian churches, a Sunday morning service would start with four words. And uh, those that have been in a Presbyterian church for a while might even know what they are. They are, let us worship God. Now, I'm not sure what they thought we were doing prior to those four words being spoken, but the idea is that we are gathered for that purpose of worshipping God. Now, I don't want to suggest for a moment that what we're doing here on Sunday morning isn't worship. I think I want to say, yes, this is. But what Paul wants to say to us from Romans chapter 12 is that worship goes way beyond what we're doing here in our Sunday gathering. And what he has to say 
gives us perhaps a different idea of worship to the one that might first come to our minds. So if you've got your Bible open there at Romans chapter 12, this is clearly the turning point in the letter for Paul. Up to this point in Romans, he's been dealing with some pretty big theological ideas. And specifically, in the last few chapters, he's been dealing with this division that exists between the Jewish Christians in the church and the Gentile Christians in the church at Rome. But we also need to remember that right back at the beginning of the letter, he told us how it is that we are made right with God. And us being made right with God is only on the basis of two things and nothing else. God's grace and our faith. God has graciously sent his son into this world to pay the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross and the way that we are supposed to respond to that is faith, to simply trust what it is that God has done for us. And that also implies not trusting ourselves, not trusting our efforts or our obedience, simply trusting what God has done for us in Jesus, in his death and his resurrection, that that will be the thing that makes us right with God. But then here in chapter 12, he starts to get down to the nitty-gritty, the, the practical implications of what he's been saying thus far in the letter. Uh, have a look there, right? very first word, chapter 12, says, Therefore. What Paul is effectively saying here is, therefore, in light of everything that I've said in these past 11 chapters, this is how you need to respond. This is how you need to act. He spells out in pretty great detail some of the implications and the practical consequences of what he said so far in the letter. Over the past few months, Deb and I have been having a great time learning to be grandparents and watching Billy grow up. Uh, yes, she does have wonderful taste in clothing. Oh, hang on, I think that's her mother who does that. Uh, it's been great to uh, to just watch her grow and to start talking and to start interacting. Uh, and one of the things that's really come back to us from our own kids growing up is that whole thing of learning to say thank you. The, the great struggle, I'm sure every parent here knows it. Uh, it can be as simple as giving Billy a glass of milk and you give her the glass of milk and you look at her and she starts drinking the milk and you say, what do you say? And she looks at you as if to say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So you say it again, what do you say? And then all of a sudden it dawns on her and she'll mumble the words, thank you. And I can remember all four of our kids doing the same thing. It's a hard thing to teach your kids to say thank you, to, for them to recognise that something has been done for them and there's a right way to respond to that. Well, Paul wants to tell us about how we ought to respond to God for what he's done. So Romans chapter 12, verse number 1, this is what he says. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. There is a lot to thank God for and words alone will not be enough to say thank you when you consider the enormity of what it is that God has done for us. Worship is the appropriate way to respond to it, Paul says. 
And worship isn't just about the songs that you sing or the style of music that you like. Worship is about how you live your life. And it's not just about how you live your life between 10 and 11 on Sunday mornings. It's how you live your life all the time. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies. The words that he's chosen there are your whole selves, the lot, everything that you have. Offer that to God, holy and pleasing to God, that that's your true and proper worship. Back in the Old Testament, uh, there were a number of sacrifices and offerings. You can read about them in the book of Leviticus. Uh, The people were expected to make these sacrifices at the tabernacle or at the temple. They'd be expected to offer portions of their crops, their animals, as a way of saying thank you to God for all of the things that he's done. One of the sacrifices that they were required to make was actually called a thank offering or a fellowship offering. It was a sacrifice that was presented as a way of thanking God for all that he'd done for them and for the relationship that they had with him and with each other in Israel as God's people. They were to offer this thank offering. And I think that's what Paul's got in mind here in this passage. That's what he's picking up on. How do you act in light of God's incredible mercy to us in Jesus? How do you respond to all that God has done for us? Well, We don't respond with some token thanks. We don't respond with some small gesture of our appreciation. I mean, this is not time for a bunch of flowers or a box of chocolates. We respond by offering ourselves, our whole selves, our complete selves as a living sacrifice. Do you see the radical idea of worship that Paul is presenting here? This is not symbolic gestures. This is not token thanks. No, giving God a little bit of what we have and keeping most of it for ourselves. Worship isn't something that's done at a special time in a special venue with special music. We respond to God's mercy by giving our whole selves to him, our whole lives, 24-7. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying that you have to sell everything and give it all to God. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's saying that we use everything that we have, that we use all of our resources, all of the skills and abilities that we have to live in worship and praise of God. We worship God in the way that we treat our family. We worship God in the way that we drive our car. We worship God in the way that we work. We worship God in the way that we spend our money, handle our bank accounts, handle our credit cards. We worship God in the way that we deal with people, the way that we treat people, the people that we work with, the people in the shop where we go to buy our two litres of milk. We worship God in the way that we use our time. We worship God with our whole lives. There isn't a moment when we're not worshipping God. That's what he's saying. No matter where you are, no matter what circumstances you are in, You're there to worship God, to bring glory and honour to him. And worship isn't some mindless thing. Worship isn't just about tapping into our emotions or creating a mood or an atmosphere. And not that I have any problems with creating moods or atmospheres, but worship starts with clear thinking, Paul says, transformed minds, changed attitudes and values. Have a look at what verse 2 says. 
Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. Surprisingly easy for us to be conformed to the things that we have around us, to fit in with the values and the attitudes that we see in our society, what we see on TV or what we read in magazines or the people that we mix with. And very often, you don't even really notice that the process is happening. You just hear these voices coming through the news or through the media or through celebrities And it's kind of like a process of osmosis. You just hang around it long enough and it seeps into you and that becomes your attitude. That becomes the value that you have in that particular thing. You get exposed to enough of it, you start thinking that way. Well, Paul says that we need to make sure that our minds are worshipping God, that they are transformed and renewed, not simply conformed to the mood of our society, but transformed by our relationship with God, renewed by knowing God. We need to think the way that God thinks. We need to value the things that God values. And the most important way that we can do that is actually by looking at what the Bible says. I know this verse gets quoted here a lot, but it gets quoted for a very good reason. Paul says that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man and woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible should be the significant thing in transforming and renewing that thinking of ours. That as we understand more of who God is and what God is like, as we understand more of what it is that Jesus has done, as we understand more about why he did the things that he did, the attitudes and the values that he had, they need to become ours. That's where we're going to get trained, corrected, rebuked, taught by hearing what God's word says. It should be the thing that trains us. But all too often we get shaped by the TV shows that we watch or the movies that we see or the podcasts that we listen to or the things that we read online. We'll let our attitudes and our values be shaped by Alan Jones or the guys on the project because clearly they've got it right and they've thought it through. Or there'll be celebrities that we want to listen to and we want to get passionate about the causes that they're passionate about because surely that must be the right thing for us to be involved in. When it comes to topical or controversial issues, we'll allow ourselves to be influenced more by people that we've seen on TV than by what the Bible might have to say about those things. So what's it going to look like for your mind to be renewed? transformed in your thinking or better still what do you think the things have been that have actually shaped your thinking where do you think you've got those values of yours from and do they conform with what God says with what God's word says do they conform with who Jesus is see at the very least we ought to try to be a little bit more discerning about the things that we watch on tv or the movies that we choose to watch. We ought to ask ourselves, is this going to help me to be more faithful in my relationship with God? 
transformed minds, renewed thinking. That's the very beginning of worshipping God. Starting in verse 3, Paul gives us uh, some incredibly practical ideas about what that worship might look like. It's almost a bit of a scattergun approach. There's very short sentences just throwing ideas at us, uh, not an enormous amount of detail, but I don't think we need the detail. We know what he's talking about. And in the first few verses there, sort of verses 3 to 11, he seems to be talking about the way that we relate to each other within the life of the church. And then from verse 14 onwards, he seems to be talking about how we relate to those outside, though there is a little bit of overlap. But have a look at what he says in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. One of the great enemies of Christian fellowship is pride. People wanting to strive for that position, to to be elected to that role or to have that responsibility so that people will look up to them and respect them. People hungering after those things. Because what it really boils down to is thinking that you're better than somebody else or wanting others to think that you're better than them. But it's not just about pride. Paul's talking here about humbly serving each other. As members of the body, as members of this church, we ought to be seeking to serve each other, to do as Jesus did when he washed his disciples' feet. To actually do that lowly thing rather than striving for that thing where I'll be revered and respected. This is what Paul means by offering our whole selves. He mentions some gifts in this passage here. says prophesying, serving, teaching, encouraging, giving, leading, showing mercy. And then there are other places in the pages of the New Testament where he actually gives far more extended lifts. I don't think he's thinking for a moment that any of these lists are going to be exhaustive of the gifts that you might be given, of the things that you might be able to do. But what he's saying is that there's a range of different ways that we can serve within the life of the church. But don't make the mistake of thinking that it's now about me sitting down and thinking, well, what gift do I have? I think the way that it works within the church is you look around and you see the need that exists. What's the area where they need somebody Because maybe that's the area, maybe me simply being able to identify that need means I'm the right person to be able to fill it. Everyone will be able to serve in some way. Some people are going to do the upfront things, some people are going to do the things that perhaps even never get noticed by other people. Things like giving or encouragement. But each one of us needs to do what we've been enabled to do to build up others. And to do so, Paul says, verse 9, from an attitude of love. Verse 9, love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love. Honour one another above yourselves. Devoted to each other. Putting others ahead of ourselves. That's the context in which we are to use the gifts and abilities that God has given us. But it's not just how we deal with each other within the church. Paul says we need to think about how we worship when we walk out those doors, when we're not mixing together with our brothers and sisters in Christ. 
And jump down to verse number 18 and have a look at what he says there. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. It's amazing how much we're encouraged to think about revenge in our society today. And it's amazing how often we think of it as being a good thing. I remember a friend of mine telling me that he was sitting one night with his mum watching one of those action movies, you know, one of those ones that had Arnold Schwarzenegger or Denzel Washington or Tom Cruise in it, I'm not even sure what the movie was. But he said that his, his incredibly quiet, gentle mother was sitting next to him as they watched this movie together. And, and like all of those movies, there comes that point in the movie where the really bad guy, the guy that you've grown to hate as the movie has rolled on, finally gets killed or destroyed by the good guy. And he's sitting next to his mother, this lovely, godly, demure little woman, and that point came in the movie, and he just heard this little whisper, yes! <laughs> he had no idea that his mother could be so vengeful, that revenge sort of made him think about his own childhood, I think. But it's not just movies where we want revenge, is it? I mean, we want revenge in real life. When someone's done the wrong thing to us, we want to make sure that there's something that comes their way. Our revenge may not be Arnold Schwarzenegger style, but if someone's unkind to me, it's very tempting for me to think, well, let's hope there's an opportunity somewhere in the future there where I can return the unkindness. If someone's rude to me, well, when the opportunity arises, I'll make sure that I'm rude to them. Now, Paul says that's not how we're supposed to think. We're not supposed to operate like that, inside the church or outside the church. And Paul gives a very good reason for not taking revenge. It's there in verses 18 and 19. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. See, the main reason that we don't need to take, up, take revenge is that God's actually in charge of the justice and judgment department. He'll actually sort all of that out in the end. God doesn't act out of spite or bitterness. And when God judges, he's perfectly fair and perfectly just in all that he does. So we worship God and we deal with people in the way that God would want us to deal with them. Now, there's a whole lot more practical stuff here in Romans chapter 12 and I don't think I've even begun to scratch the surface of it. So I'm sure that you can read through it again and you've already looked at it in Bible study groups. But in light of what Paul says here, you've really got to say to yourself, so how's my worship looking? How do I view my life? Do I view it as being a living sacrifice? Am I saying thank you to God for the incredible things that he's done for me by serving him with my whole life? For Paul, in this letter to the Romans, this is kind of where the rubber hits the road. Now, it's not to say that other things that he said so far haven't been practical, but here is where he wants to drive home the practical implications. This is where you are to assess how you're going, how you're responding to what it is that God has done. And what he's saying is that because of the salvation that you have, you really ought to say thank you to your Heavenly Father. And you do it with your whole life. Three things. First one, 
transformed, not conformed. I'm sure that this is probably one of the biggest things for us in our society today. It's so easy for us to be conformed to the voices that are around us without even trying to think about what the Christian view or the Christian approach would be on those issues. Social issues, moral issues, transformed in our thinking, not conformed to what everybody else is saying around us. It means that we have to keep thinking about our values and our attitudes and our ethics and our morality. We think things through. We don't conform to the ideas that are around us. We try to understand God's mind on the matter and try to make that the value that we have. We humbly seek to serve, number two, humbly seek to serve as God has entrusted us with gifts and abilities. I love that scattergun. Have a look at verse number six, chapter 12. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. If it's teaching, then teach. If it's encouraged, then give encouragement. If it's giving, then give generously. If it's to lead, then do it diligently. If it's to show mercy, then do it cheerfully. I think he's just saying, get on with it. Don't sit back and wait. Look for the opportunities for you to be able to serve and get in there. How are you doing when it comes to humility? I have to say I'm doing quite brilliantly at that level. In fact, I'd have to say I'd be hard to find a more humble person than me. But are you using the gifts and abilities that God has given you to encourage others within the life of the church? Third, it's about how we actually worship 24-7. Not just here on Sundays, but the rest of the week. The people that we work with the family that we live with? How are we dealing with them? How do you think you're viewed by your non-Christian friends and workmates? Do they see you as a peacemaker? Do they see you as sympathetic? Do they see you as someone who's seeking to serve? I'm sure that all of us struggle in those areas and I'm sure that all of us can work harder. So we need to go back to verse number 1 and 2 in chapter 12. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good pleasing and perfect will. 